Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're down to the final four. It's been a long road. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. It's extremely helpful if you rate and renew, review us on iTunes. So now let's get down to the final four. back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We are nearing the end of what has been a very long uh, and and highly contested trek from 64 teams down to tonight's final four. And um, much like this year's NCAA tournament, uh, a lot of surprises in the final four. Uh, three teams uh, in the real one that uh, nobody saw coming. And I think a few here that, that, people, that took people by surprise as well. So just to recap the... Uh, Tonight's Final Four includes matchups between Sly and the Family Stone and the Pixies. And then in the late game, it's going to be the Stooges versus Nirvana. So some real powerhouse players. And I'm going to jump right in, and, and uh, we'll take the uh, Sly and the Family Stone, Nor- NorCal's rock funk pioneers, led by Sly Stone and his brother, his sister, and his cousin. And uh, going up against the Pixies, the upstarts from... Uh, out of the University of Massachusetts, uh, based out of Boston, and, you know, sort of a, a short, fiery uh, career that, um, you know, four quick albums, uh, and then ducking out. Uh, one of the things that Christian and and uh, Ted talked about, we were discussing earlier, is that um, you can't really uh, go through the entire band's catalog without, I mean, if we're going to use... Sly and the Family Stone's weaker points as a barometer has declined into um, addiction and, and mental health issues. We're going to have to also bring up the fact that both the Pixies and the Stooges uh, had a, a late career, uh, reunited late career, and put out a couple of albums themselves. So, um, you know, I'm sort of considering the body of work that they put together in their peak moment Um in the late 80s, early 90s, but in, in fact, we do need to consider um, that both bands got back together and did reunion albums. So, Jerry, where, and, where and are you, Well, these are, these are two surprises, so let's, let's take a minute and uh, recap, if you guys don't mind, who, who both these, uh, these sort of surprise contenders beat out to get to this Final Four matchup. Ah, the road to the final four, yeah. Um, I think, uh, so Sly and the Family Stone came in from Region 1, uh, teeing off against the White Stripes in the first round. Um, and uh, then from there, they they took on uh, Boston, uh, beat them. Um, so they've they've already uh, taken down one team from Massachusetts. Then uh, then in a, a local Bay Area, um, or California rivalry at least, uh, you have... Sly and the Family Stone against uh, against CCR uh, in the Sweet 16, and then finally in the Elite Eight, they they topped uh, the Beach Boys and probably Oof. the biggest surprise Oof. surprise victory um, to uh, to to sneak into the Final Four. Um, that is as a, for the Pixies. Well, I was just going to uh, comment quickly on the Sly Sly's route. I mean, that is a 
literally a murderer's row. They of, were a they were a giant killer. That was a yeah. Tough bracket. Um, no, I mean I think I think for for a lot of people's money, CCR and the Beach Boys both could have uh, been, been. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but again, I mean they're they're um, you know they're they're sort of seminal importance um, you know within the social fabric of of the era um, and just Sly Stone's you know personally his his um, just incredible capacity uh, as a as a producer as an as an you know um, an instrument sort of multi instrumentalist uh, uh, his ability to sort of orchestrate um, albums and and really. Um, you know, tease out the best of the musicians around him. I think that that probably, uh, you know, he has sort of superstar caliber um, ability there. Um, as for the as for the Pixies, though, their their road was um, was no easy journey. Uh, and speaking of journey, that was actually the band <laughs> that they beat in the opening round of '64. Um, from there, they they took on uh, they took on Spoon. Um, who actually have released an album since uh, since the tournament started. Um, Probably strengthening their case, actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is this is one of the bands. Yeah, this is one of the bands that we've we've talked about uh, in, in Spoon. That you know, of all of the bands on this list, that's that's really you know still still producing albums that we want to listen to. Um, but from there, uh, the the Pixies uh, moved on to take on Wilco, um, perhaps another another sort of uh, another band of their indie genre um, and another sort of darling of, of critics, uh, and. After that, I think probably their toughest matchup was against Leonard Skinnerd, um, who were uh, I think by the time we got to the Elite Eight, um, you know, definitely a, definitely a contender, and, and we thought potentially going all the way. Um, so there we have it: uh, the Pixies and Sly and the Family Stones route to the Final Four. Neither one of them had an easy journey. That's amazing. No, that's impressive. That's a that's a lot of carnage to leave on the on the road. Um, so anyway, uh, we were, you know, sort of, there's a, um, you know, there's a, a, a potential for, for exhausting, uh, conversation as far as, you know, really wrapping up these bands, uh, music and legacy. But, you know, in both cases here, um, you know, if you're a hip hop fan, um, or dance music fan, you can't have, you know, nothing you listened to was never, wasn't you know, influenced by Sly and the Family Stone. And if you're an indie rock, uh, college rock fan, uh, dating back to, you know, 1986, the, the genre really doesn't exist in the same way uh, without the Pixies, including uh, one of the bands in the other bracket who cited them as a primary influence, Nirvana, um, never let go of the fact that uh, they wanted to be the Pixies and, and openly stated that, that's what they were going for when they recorded "Smells Like Teen Spirit," so uh, it's a roughy here. Uh, what are you thinking? Yeah, you have two bands that have you know. I mean, the, I think our, they they fit every every point on our, our criteria. Um, I think we all go back and, and listen to both of these bands. Obviously, they had they had cultural impact. Um, you know, I, I think they both had you know relatively short excellent output and then some some you know as we said when as you said the pixies did reunite and put out some stinkers and you can arguably say their last album was a bit of a dud as well um but sly too late you mean their last album of the their last (coughs) album that they put out in the 90s right right i'm sorry yeah trump lamont that would be their last album in the in the 90s but um you know i think 
I don't know. It's tough. I mean, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Pixies um, just as a band that I, I think, you know, maybe some listeners might be a little surprised to hear in this final four is kind of, a you know, one of the greatest American bands. And, and I think they're a band that, that definitely deserves to be in this final four, mainly just because, um, you know, nobody I heard it. I heard a great quote today like you know you can kind of look at a lot of bands and, and sort of trace their their lines okay this band has a little bit of James Brown or a little bit of Sly or a little bit of um you know early soul or blues and and the Pixies are just really hard to do that with they just exploded onto the scene with a, a really really unique blend of of um songwriting and, and song craft and uh and you know I, I to this day like you know bands like Spoon who we mentioned earlier Nirvana you know, they certainly influence bands, but I wouldn't say either of those bands sound like the Pixies. Nobody sounds like the Pixies, which I think is really unique. Sly, on the other hand, you know, obviously um, there would be, you know, some of the disco hits and and funk and soul and rock, you know, I mean, they they too, nobody quite blended it all together like they did, but I I can't say there's another band that that sounds quite like the Pixies do. Yeah, I think that's a a great point. Um, I mean, and, and in particular, you know, when you said they burst onto the the scene. I mean, I thought, yeah, with a sort of hellish shriek. Actually, I mean, it, it's like um, the the lyrical. I mean, the the vocal delivery uh, is something that, like, I think is probably worthy of of sort of independent mention, right? Like, I mean, it, it just that his his voice um, is just is so incredibly jarring, um, and these sort of uh, the the imagery that he he paints in his lyrics. Which I mean, I think Wyndham, at another point in this tournament, you talked about how. Uh, with with Stephen Malkmus and, and Pavement, um, and uh, was it Slanted and Enchanted that you were talking yeah. about? Um, that that you know, it's it's a really difficult thing to do to to sort of uh, to you know patch those those kinds of um, like pure pure imagery or uh, what was well, the term a, that you used to a, describe it? It's a it's a fine line between absurdist and foolish sounding, um, right? You know, it's or just plain silly, exactly. And uh, one of the things I was I was thinking about with the I mean the Pixies right off the bat you, you, uh, on their first two albums you're talking about singing in three different languages which is bizarre because none of it it was very much of a um, lyrics for them and vocal delivery were punctuation it was um, you know there wasn't a, like a real storytelling mechanism it was it was more like they almost seemed more uh, concerned with the sound of of words than the meaning of words. Um, and I think that, uh, go ahead. Of, of course, and I think the, you know, but the, and, and the words themselves sound completely different than you or I would ever speak them, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is such an interesting uh, uh, sort of, sort of vision that he, that, you know, um, Black Francis clearly has and, and he, you know, when he's, when he's penning these things. Pretty I often actually think about that when I'm, when I'm thinking about uh, uh, rap lyrics, um, because, you know, there are a lot of times where like, Rhymes are teased out that I just don't K- yeah, see or hear. Matters, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and I think that the the there's a valuable point also in terms of the way that this struck this sort of balance in extremes, right? That you have a sort of mood that's like simultaneously downright, you know, mechanical or or machine like, um, but but also sometimes really sexy. But it's also um, you know, really tightly wound at times, and then also completely unhinged. The loud, quiet, loud thing is sort of uh, is is always an illusion that's brought up. You yeah. know, uh, and and then you've got this sort of um, you know insane religious imagery as well, and it's just you know uh, 
I think Violent juxtaposed too. with sort of yeah juxtaposed with sort of evil and violence. So it's a really I mean it, it's sort of you go in these massive peaks and valleys constantly across all these different dimensions that I think makes it kind of exciting. Well, one of the things I was I you know was re- remarking upon and or just recalling um, was you know I mean uh, we've talked uh, at length about how we received information back when this was new music. So, you know, we're talking 86, 87, um, you know, and let's say I, like I said, I uh, will, and I'm going to repeat myself, but, you know, I received these uh, very early on. I received uh, Come On Pilgrim before it was a proper album. And um, one of the things that, you know, always struck me when I first started reading about this band and, um, you know, we were very limited in, in visuals. We didn't know what they looked like. We didn't know who they were. We didn't know much of anything. And, and in fact, you know, their names on the first album were Black Francis and Mrs. John Murphy. So, it, like, they didn't really let us in on the mystery very well. But one of the things I remember reading early on was that, you know, Black Francis was a, a Beach Boys obsessive, which doesn't sound remarkable now, but it really, this kind of came on the early end of people rediscovering what a great album Pet Sounds was, and he was already, um, you know, sort of name-checking it as, you know, primary influence in, in writing songs and music. And uh, it, that, like I said, it doesn't sound um, that strange now, but at the time, you know, the Beach Boys were an oldies act. They weren't cool. Yeah, they weren't a hipster, uh, you know, obsession. sort of yeah. obsession. Yeah. So they hadn't evolved into that, you know, sort of, grandparents of of modern rock kind of thing they were still seen as a sort of you know band your parents might go see um you know having john stamos and daryl dragon bahama shirts yeah i mean it was it was pretty uncool he was sort of uh, my first recollection of somebody bringing them up as like a, a, a principal influence and in, in sort of genius work so interesting um you know that piece of it as well because so on really, the flips Sorry, go ahead. I mean, but on the flip side, you know, I think you're up against a band in Sly that just had a, a far greater reach. So, I mean, we're we're a bit of an insular group with our musical taste sometimes, and uh, you know, we definitely lean <clears throat> lean heavy on on bands that the Pixies influenced. And a band like the Pixies was certainly, I mean, I'll just say it right now: there, if I had to name a, a favorite band, it probably would be the Pixies. But um, but at the same time, I think you know Sly. Sly was a, a much bigger act who who had huge radio hits, um, and just had a you know and, and you know like we said hits all the criteria that we talk about, and um, you know really well, spread its wings a lot further, and also has just I mean, as I, an amazing songs. I mean they're fantastic. I mean I think the story of Sly as we've as we've spelled it out over the last few weeks has been one of you know it's a band that like and pardon the lame lame ass uh, you know. Um, metaphor here, but it's 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 a band that it, that serves as sort of a, a crossroads, right? Musically, it's weaving together psychedelic rock of the 1960s, um, choral like vocal forward groups of the 1960s, such as the Mamas and the Papas, but also of Motown, um, and uh, you know, and then I think socially, like, look, this is the first this is the first honest to god rock band that is both men and women, black mm-hmm. and white. Um, that we've ever seen, and and like it just blew the charts out of the water. I mean, it was they were they were dominant. Yeah, that was. Did they um, playing Woodstock for, and Monterey, or did they? Just, I know they, they played, played Woodstock. Woodstock. Yeah. Yep. But you know they, uh, you know that was no accident. That was completely by design. 
you know, Greg Errico, um, the drummer being white, uh, Jerry Martini, um, even, but even Cynthia, uh, Jackson's inclusion as a female trumpeter. I mean, none of that was accidental. He went and found people because he wanted, um, you know, really to promote this, uh, you know, spirit of togetherness and, and, uh, you know, he got great players, but, you know, he, he, there's a, there's probably a, a bunch of people that, you know, you got to look pretty hard to find a female trumpeter uh, in the late 60s that, uh, you know, was kicking around. There there weren't a lot of them. I think he was making a stand. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> About everyday people. Um, no, but I mean, there, yeah, it was an incre- – exactly, and, and recruiting everyday people for his band. Um, no, but I mean, you know, I, I think that, that that sort of social consciousness was, was um, I think – reflective of the time, but also, uh, I mean, you know, really progressive in, in terms of what it accomplished. I mean, you know, you think about the bands that were able to come after that for precisely that reason. I mean, that was, that was, that was desegregation at its, at its finest, um, and integration rather than desegregation, I should say. Um, and, you know, I think those are, those are really important factors when you think about, um, the, the legacy that those guys left behind. So, I mean, I think the, the social impact, man, I, I've got to give, I've got to give an edge in social impact, cultural impact to Sly for sure. You mean not um, not integrating people from Western Mass and Eastern Mass? <laughs> exactly. Hard from to the do, field, by the way, from from the field hockey team and the AV club. Yeah. Um, at the yeah no, but I mean it's uh, but but you know at the same time it's yeah the the legacy. I mean it's it's a really tough one. Um, so are you guys? I don't know. Uh, any any other looming points that you want to make before we before we bring this to a vote? No, I'm I'm kind uh, of curious. Yeah. I, I still don't know where it's going. It's a jump ball. Let's figure out where it goes. Jerry, Jeremy, wanna... why don't you throw down first? <laughs> yeah, I think we know. <laughs> well, I mean, look, you know, since it's thrown to me first, I uh, I can make the same argument for both bands. So it's really tough. I mean, I'm a huge Pixies fan. I'm a huge Sly fan. Fan. I think they're both equally. They're not equally. They're both important to me and, and to the music world, and, and so. Um, but I'm just going to go down and, and say that uh, I don't know. There's something about the Pixies that I just find completely unique in sound, and 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 um, I just think it's cool. Not every once in a while, like a band comes around and um, just has a sound that could be unmatched. Whether it's a Neutral Milk Hotel airplane over the sea, or a Pet Sounds, or um, you know, just an album that really, you know, or in their case, three albums to me that, that nobody else can touch. So I'm going to go Pixies. All right. I, uh, wow. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think you guys have laid out a great case for the Pixies. Um, and Jeremy, you know, certainly I, I, I you incredibly valid points about the influence that they've had on so much of the music that I've listened to my whole life. But I mean, really, as we've progressed through this tournament, one one thing you know, it's I, I've done a ton more research into Sly, and I, I really just I think that the the importance. I mean th- that that band was the perfect the perfect tool with the perfect set of tools at the right time. Um, so I'm gonna have to put my vote down for Sly. Yeah, um, it puts me in a very difficult position, but um, I, I know where I'm. I think I know where I'm headed, and uh, I would I would um, say Sly. He, took a couple of albums to get their sound perfect. Their sound got perfect uh, for about a three-album run, which is exactly how long the Pixies' perfect streak lasted. So, you know, we're going uh, three-on-three, essentially, uh, when it comes to, you know, judging uh, the, their key output. Um, it's, 
hard to do, but I'm going to go Pixies just because, like I said, there's not a band that I listened to uh, that, that followed them that didn't cite them as, a, as an influence and a uh, uh, really groundbreaking, earth-shaking kind of band. All right, well, you caught me smiling. I'm happy the Pixies are moving on. So you want to take a break and we'll come back with the second match? Sounds good. All right. with the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, the late matchup, the final game, the final four, uh, Pitts Nirvana versus the Stooges. And how did they get here, Christian? So to start off, we have, uh, we have the Stooges, who um, in their uh, opening matchup, the round of 64, took on My Morning Jacket um, and uh, ground them into tiny bits of meat and left them, uh, left them in the middle of the basketball court. In the middle um, of the Bonnaroo field. Yeah, exactly. It was truly Burning Man. Um, and uh, then the next round in 32, we had the Stooges against Blondie, the battle for CBGBs. Um, this was, uh, you know, I mean, again, I think, uh, I think they simply overpowered them. Nobody, um, nobody wants to see Debbie Harry go home. No, it's true. Um, in the Sweet 16, Stooges took on Van Halen. And this, uh, this was a, this was a more surprising, you know, it's, it's sort of power on power. It's, it's grandiosity, um, in Van Halen. But I think what we realized was that Van Halen is, uh, well, they had Van Hagar, and that's just embarrassing. Um, and then in the Elite Eight, the Stooges took on the Birds in a confusing matchup. Um, I just sort of imagine a poof of feathers. Uh, and now, you know, of course, they're, they're sitting in the Final Four. Um, Nirvana's Road was, uh, again, I mean, another real powerhouse here. In the opening round, they took on the Black Keys. Um, no contest. Uh, I think they then went on in the round of 32 to take on Guided by Voices. Um, I think you guys summed it up pretty well in, in your description um, earlier. Uh, it was sort of, you know, Guided by Voices wanted nothing to do with that matchup. <laughs> they knew it from the outset, but, um, uh, you know, put up a, a valiant attempt anyway. Um, and then I, I think where it got difficult for them was, uh, was really in the Sweet 16 when they took on the Ramones. Um, this was tough, you know, they, they really had to show down one of the, one of the great, um, you know, the first truly, uh, fully formed, you know, punk act in, in the U S. Um, and then in the elite eight, it got even more difficult and perhaps the most difficult matchup in the tournament when they took on the velvet underground. Um, I think, you know, we were really torn about that. I believe it was a, it was a clean sweep and, and the Nirvana got all three of our votes, but, uh, I think we all, 
basically eulogize the Velvet Underground, and and I you know I definitely will go on the record again saying I think that Velvet Underground is actually my favorite band of these two, but it's it's really difficult to uh, to deny um, the tremendous importance and and sort of cultural influence and just you know uh, of of Nirvana. I mean, those guys were truly a supernova. So there we are. And that brings Nirvana us to, and the to tonight's matchup, which is uh, yeah. Stooges and Nirvana. Um, and it's uh, it didn't get any easier just listening to to the their, both of their roads here. What um, you know, Kristen, you said you had. Um, go ahead. Yeah. No, I've got. I've actually. You know. I've got a, I think a pretty good take on this, or or at least an interesting one that I want to toss out there to to sort of to set these two to bands up difficult. for you guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really to yeah. to make this, you know, to show you how much this is going to come down to the Nobody wire. Nobody wants to go first, so please do. I, I yeah, um, I'm just doing this so I don't have to go last. Um, but uh, you know, I think the I, as you know, I've been reading um, "Please Kill Me: The Legs McNeil Oral History of Punk Rock." Um, and uh, so I've I also recently watched Jim Jarmusch's um, documentary, Gimme Danger, uh, about the Stooges, um, who, you know, he proudly declares in the opening credits is the greatest rock band of all time. Um, he's clearly a mega fan. Uh, and, you know, so I, I think it's safe to say that I've been getting a healthy or unhealthy, depending on which way you want to look at it, dose of Iggy in my life lately. Um but, you know, I, the more I reflected on this, and, and it's also worth noting that, like, I think as much as I've been a student of the Stooges lately or more recently, you know, I, I was this much of an obsessive uh, about Nirvana when I was in high school, um, you know, down to down to reading through Kurt Cobain's journals and all this stuff. It was like, I, I, you know, I found that guy sort of a, a fascinating, you know, perfect anti-hero to, like, my high school life. Um, uh, and, you know, I think the the... The breakdown between these two bands um, is is really one between confrontation uh, in the Stooges and catharsis in Nirvana. Um, you know, the, the Stooges from the from the outset were a band completely devoted to confrontation. They challenged social norms and mores in like just the most extravagant ways that that they can imagine. You know, sonically, lyrically, physically, and interactively. Um, and I think you know, I, I'll I just want to touch on each of those four points. Um, Sonically, I think raw power pretty much sums it up. Um, it was loud, grinding distortion and heavy, loose, crashing drums. It was also 1969. You know, this was noisy music at a time when noisy was an insult when you're talking about a band. Um, you know, how many years after the Beatles are we talking? Like, it just, it didn't, it they, didn't fit. It wasn't, it wasn't cranked up, you know, amplified. Year, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was like, it was brain rattling music. Um, and, you know, lyrically, they are similarly confrontational. Like their peers in the Velvet Underground, uh, they explored themes of drug abuse and sexual deviance that still made people cringe even at the end of a free love fatigued and LSD fried 1960s. I mean, the I Want to Be Your Dog is a song about sexual domination that, I, I mean, shit, who am I kidding? Like, they, like, this still makes people cringe. It's not like I don't want to play that for my mom or grandfather right now, you know? Um, and I think physically is really where it sort of takes off and this band is sort of set apart. Um, Iggy was the real deal in terms of performance. Uh, I think few people have committed their bodies to rock and roll as fearlessly as Iggy Pop did in his Stooges era. You know, you, you've and anybody who's listening has heard us make allusions to this all tournament, right? Um, but 
he, he was like he was a genuine glutton for punishment. It was complete sort of self sacrifice on the altar of rock. Um, and this guy, you know, he was leaping around and, and contorting his sinewy, like heroiny body into impossible shapes and hanging himself with microphone cords and knocking out his teeth and shredding himself on broken glass. And um, you know, I, I think like just to just to actually underscore this point. Um, Consider a brief chronology of the history of dance performance in rock and roll. You have the 1950s, uh, where Chuck Berry duck walks and Elvis shakes his hips. You have the 1960s, where kids watch American Bandstand and learn to do the twist for the first time. You have 1968, which is the summer of uncoordinated hippie dancing. And then you have 1969, when Iggy hurls his naked peanut butter and blood-smeared body off a 10-foot stage into an unsuspecting audience of horrified people. The guy took it way past the fucking limit. And I think that that was just one of the most exciting and invigorating things we've seen in rock and roll. Um, the the superhuman consumption of drugs probably helps the last part, but um, even so, you know, it, holy shit. Um, interactively is the last point I think I made, and I am, I am moving on, gentlemen. I'll be there soon. Um, but interactively, I think every guy who ever pissed off an audience on purpose, owes something to Iggy. Uh, Johnny Rotten, Sex Pistols, Lee Ving, Fear, Gigi Allen, I don't know, Hell, wherever he's from, uh, or even a crooner. New Hampshire, like, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Is he really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, or, but even, even crooners like Morrissey, who are antagonistic in the public spotlight. I mean... Everybody owes a debt to this guy for challenging his audience instead of just playing to them and playing for them. Um, that pretty much wraps my Stooges spiel. I want to touch on Nirvana, though, which is that by the time these guys rolled around, I think the confrontational era of punk had sort of had, had come and gone, right? It was this flash in a pan in the 70s, and then you, heard, you got it, it through, the, through the 80s in the Reagan era punk um, as well. But, like, Gen Xers, and, and this is, I am going to turn it over to you for... for like your personal experience with this, but I think that Gen Xers were a new generation um, that, you know, where 70s and 80s punk carved out a place for youth and losers as a class of people, um, like the emergence of indie rock culture and punk ethics had sort of in the late 80s and 90s raised a generation of kids who were focused on themselves and were focused on personal problems. Um, and actually, one of the things I came across when I was, when I was reading about this stuff was, like, uh, in 94, Eric Weisbard wrote this great essay in Spin Magazine reflecting on Nirvana's rock and roll ethos and writing that Kurt Cobain, quote, seemed to, lo- uh, seemed to best love punks who sang from the provincial recesses of rock's domain for self-comfort more than confrontation. And he never left his touchstones obscure, cluing in other young isolates in need of a personal shield of sound. So, in other words, while Nirvana's music, I think, sort of channeled all this aggression and confrontation of the 70s and 80s, they added a a confessional dimension that I think is really what makes it so timeless and so personal for a lot of the people who love it, you know? And Nirvana melded the power and jarring performance of Iggy, but with some of the most heartfelt emotions of a guy like Brian Wilson. Um, And I think the result was a fucking freight train. So with that, I will turn it over to you guys. Well, I was just going to say, it's, I, I'm going to shift gears because um, and talk more about Nirvana, which is, um, it's funny, when we were talking about this, both uh, when we interviewed Simon O'Connor, Simon Doom, and uh, Jeremy talking about this, um, both these guys were in, I think, elementary school and junior high or high school, respectively. And, um, you know... Yeah, I was they, in high school. Yeah, they both, you guys both said that 
you know, that was like an absolute crushing blow when Kurt Cobain died. It was um, that you got, you know, really emotionally upset and, um, you know, very sad. And and the funny thing is, is that I was 24, I think, or 25 uh, when that happened. And I was angry about it. Um, You know, it sort of, uh, it seemed avoidable as much as I've read about him, as much as I've you know, know about him. I, I understand, um, you know, how difficult living with, uh, um, mental illness can, can be for, for somebody, but it just, the whole thing seemed avoidable to me. Um, and I wish it had been, uh, cause I would, I, he's somebody who I don't think necessarily, because I went back and I have been, uh, watching a lot, um, listening to a lot of Nirvana, watching a lot of footage of Nirvana playing live. He was a super talented guy. He was a good writer. He was a really good singer, um, good musician. And um, it, it just, it's a shame you don't get to find out what the next act was because it all went away really quickly. Um, but that said, uh, I'm, you know, I'm also shocked pleasantly and amazed that, uh, Iggy Pop is, is still walking the earth. Um, somehow, <laughs> somehow that guy, if you'd actually taken bets in 1990, mm-hmm. who was going to live longer? Who the hell? Well, I guess by 1990, Iggy Pop had pretty much lived it all, but, um, Jesus, yeah. it's amazing. It really yeah, is. Iggy. So, um, I don't know, I'll kick it over to Jeremy, just just <clears throat> to say that I think, you know, Kurt Cobain was one of those rare talents that could uh, could really do it all, and the, the what I had forgotten about was the power of that guy's voice. He was a forceful, forceful singer um, who had great melody. And I would just jump in very quickly on that point and say that, you know, I know we've often discussed the, the MTV Unplugged album, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think... Look, I don't, I don't hold it up. I don't celebrate it the way that I think some people do. Is like maybe this was secretly their best album. It wasn't. You need like the studio stuff is you know that that brings in all three musicians is is so incredible. But if you really do want just the stripped down skeleton of his voice, I mean that shit is haunting. Um, and I mean it really like watch it, listen to it, whichever it doesn't matter. Well, like, so he just he really does have pipes and and you know. You, you look at what the you know what his choice of songs were. They were all pretty uh, death related. Um, yep. he, he had a sort of a singular. Um, I don't know. He, he sort of was on. He was on a path that you could that you could kind of uh, that you could document. You suggesting he was he did trying a to great tell us job yeah. of uh, curating other people's music too, yeah, uh, bringing great taste. underground yep. people. I the mean, the, the meat, well, pu- meat puppets. The Vaseline's you know, meat puppets, yeah. Lead Belly and David Bowie were his choices for, uh, for covers in that set. Like, what? And, you know, the, the fun, I actually went back and I didn't realize it until I, I looked at the, at the timeline. Um, but that was, I had seen them on the 13th and 14th of November. They recorded that on the 18th of November in New York. So it was, uh, you know, it was a really wow. uh, interesting time. I hadn't realized that... Um, you know, it was my great, um, you know, I was, I was the beneficiary of, of good timing, but I didn't realize that I had actually seen them in the same week that they did that. That's incredible. I didn't know that either. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tough case. I mean, you've got, you know, I also watched the Jim Jarmus Jarmish doc, um, recently the give me danger and, and you really do. I mean, I think the coolest thing, and I, I'll talk about Nirvana too, just cause that was, you know, very, I, you know, I was in high school, so it was the perfect age for Nirvana. But, um, but you know, pre that, uh, the Stooges, I mean, one of the things that really just blow me away, and I feel this way about any 
kind of important great band. I mean, we we obviously just had the the Pixies move on, and, and it's kind of the same some of the same reasoning here is that, you know, Christian, you mentioned 1969, 1968, when these guys came about and some of the most impressive stuff is just Iggy's awareness of the bullshit in the music scene (laughs) and kind of the, uh, you know, I loved when he talked in that doc, if you haven't seen it, you know, for our listeners, it's it's really a great doc. You just see the, the sort of sheer, uniqueness and power of this band and and performance and and song craft too i mean those are great songs but two things really stuck out at me he just kind of knew that he's like when he's like look i'm I'm not bob dylan blah 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 you know i'm not going to throw a million words in there because i can't write them but I, i i learned that i could you know sparsely if i less is more kind of you know performance and singing and, and he's absolutely right it was it was perfect and the other piece was when he talked about sort of the summer of love and what was going on in, in San Francisco and he's like you know don't fool yourself you know I mean yes there were some obviously unique acts out there but but a lot of these bands were put together in, in studio executives you know offices and the music industry was was being well watered down at that point even um, by kind of the machine and and you know I think he's at, I, mean, I think he's right on and and the other cool thing that that I think is great about the Stooges and, and kind of like, you know, un, I think maybe unlike VU, um, they had a real audience in that, that upper Midwest. So you had the MC five who was the bigger band at the time. And then you had the Stooges and it wasn't like, I mean, they didn't obviously ever kind of go on to be the national band just cause they were so counter and, and so confrontational. But you know, those early shows in Ann Arbor where they got signed by Electra Records, I mean, they were packing the house and, and blowing, you know, blowing well, right the socks there, off of people. They were on Electra Records. Exactly. Well, and it was the their their signing to Electra, of course, was was basically, you know, uh Ann Arbor who went to who went to see MC five. And, you know, even MC even the guys like uh, Wayne Kramer and MC five were, were sort of like, Jesus yeah, Christ, check out you know, this we're band. we're basically forced to yeah. tour with the greatest opening rock band of all time. Yeah. Well, yeah, when they talked about, like, coming up with a riff for, you know, and be your dog, and just everybody, like, the MC5 guys were like, ooh, that's fucking good. <laughs> you know, like, Shit. That is, uh, <laughs> that's going to be killer. So, I mean, look, you know, it's a, and, you know, the other cool thing is, is where Nirvana had the Stooges, the Pixies, um, you know, the Ramones, uh, Melvins, the whole Pacific Northwest sound, Mud Honey, to really kind of hone and, and strengthen what they ended up doing you know as good as anybody if not better obviously than than a lot of people being it that they're in this final four um you know the stooges were listening to some really kind of interesting stuff i mean you know iggy was a huge blues and and um jazz you know kind of you know avant-garde jazz fan but he also kind of knew what he could do in the you know rock sense that they were like working class kids from from Michigan. You know they're not they're not jazz musicians from Chicago. And you know he did play drums for blues guys. And he's like sat on the bank and was like, well, I'm a white kid, so I'm gonna go play rock and roll or whatever and, and take what I learned here. And, and I thought that was really brilliant. And he's just a smart guy. And it's amazing he's alive. And, and they made you know the cool thing about both these bands too is three albums of output really. Um, yeah, they had well, some extras but the, but that's really the the bulk of what they did you make a great point jeremy about you know the his sort of his aware i mean his awareness of, of what he was doing in sort of time and place which is pretty unusual i think like you don't often get guys who sort of see themselves in a broader lineage or, or understand the wider environment you know they they sort of they're very focused on their art and he sort of said where can i fit into this um my question though is just on the performance side 
like, what in the hell was that? I mean, that didn't, uh, like, what's the, what's the basis of influence for that? Or, I mean, it just, it's, that is so out of nowhere. And that really, I think, I mean, he was in many respects, yeah, like a James know, Brown, 10 years ahead like of his unique, time. Yeah. You know, it's like, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I mean, you know, he knows that that's going to alienate people. And it, in a way it did. I mean, it made him kind of a freak show that caused people to, to in some respects, sideline him or, and, or sort of marginalize Well, and that him. kind of became the downfall of them, too. So as much as they sort of ignited in the beginning, you know, and drugs obviously had a huge part to do at the end. You know, they really were kind of just a waste case band at the end that, that you know, was not. You know, we talk about their bands like the replacements that kind of showed up and just fought with the audience and, and kind of clowned around and, and, you know, didn't, didn't, they couldn't get it done because nobody wanted to hear them, A, but, but they also were just so messed up. Well, they're based, um, fortunately, fortunately for us, I think, though, it's, you know, yeah, you're right. I mean, they never, they never made it out of that, that sort of. Yeah, the bass player um, died and, uh, yeah. The bulk of, you know, it's a, it's a, their Sad thing. story. Died at they, thirty, drinking they to death. Yeah, yeah. But um, I'm going to talk about Nirvana real quick, and, and I'll, I'll turn it over. Sorry, I don't want to take up too much time on here. But you know, Nirvana obviously was, you know, I've, I've said it before. I'll, you know, I'll talk a little bit personal experience. But they were a band that was kind of buzzed about before Nevermind came out, and, and mainly because I, it was, it was interesting to hear your guys' interview with Simon Doom. And one of the things that struck me, because he was he's younger than me, but we obviously both had very impactful, you know, kind of musical experiences with, with Nirvana. Um, I was pretty into music by the time Nirvana came around. And so I'd, I'd heard people like Jay Maskus in interviews talk about them as this band that, you know, of, of guys in flannel shirts kind of coming up and blowing everyone away. And, and Bleach did not do that for me. And, and it was kind of lumped in with... Um, you know, some bands like Soundgarden, Louder Than Love, and some of those kind of real, um, you know, big Pacific Northwest albums that were coming out at the time. Um, I didn't dislike it, but it just it just wasn't really my my it wasn't sound. As good as the first Mud Honey album, it's really. not. Yeah, no, it isn't, and it's uh, it's it's a it's a good album, and it's got you know great songs on it. But those are songs that I learned to love lo- hearing them live, and then kind of going back to it. Um, never mind. I mean, it, it just really flipped everything on its head. I, uh, you know, like I said, I was I was into music. I was just so excited that the sound that I'd kind of been into had actually become mainstream. So where everybody, you know, somebody like Kurt Cobain was miserable at his success, or miserable that, you know, now, uh, you know, the the guys that made fun of him in high school or whatever uh, liked the music. I was just, you know, so excited that you know, this sound and this 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 band that you know I really loved, but but kind of echoed a lot of the bands I'd been listening to. Um, people were finally like, "Oh man, I told you this stuff is great." You know, this is so good. And and um, and then you know, it, it's funny when you we got into um, you know, obviously they had a lot of problems, and it was and it was like an emotional band for me because you know, Kurt Cobain. Not only do you have this guy that you you wish all the success for, and you're so excited for, he obviously turned away from that success. Um, you know, it was very hard for him to deal with, you know, very public drug problems, things like that. So much so that, I mean, in, when you talked a little bit about this with the Pixies, it wasn't that much, you had MTV and you had obviously more media, but you still were reading about these guys. Um, you had videos, but I mean, I remember when, um, in utero was being recorded and it was like, Ooh, Nirvana's making an unlistenable album to, you know, get rid of its audience and, and I mean, there was all this sort of buzz around, you know, they've recruited Steve Albini 
to just create a you know noise album because they they want you know none of the fans to to these new sort of bandwagon fans to and then you you know I bought you know the minute it came out I bought an advanced copy on vinyl it was clear vinyl I was so excited and went home and 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 served the servants as the first song and it's like really this is unlistenable this is like a pop gem you know yeah. it's it's a great rock song and and uh, you know I've gone back and listened in utero quite a bit. Um, recently, I, I really like that album a lot, and and uh, I love the sound of it. I mean, I think Nevermind is a better full album, but I, I think In Utero has my, some of my favorite Nirvana songs on it. Um, and to me, the the real shame is like, and then I think the thing that I was I was most upset about is is you see a band that like, you know, that was their big fu, and it, it turns out to be just a great, well written album with you know great pop rock blues noise all the things you love about nirvana um and then you had the unplugged performance which which i too think is very powerful and amazing but that was a band that probably was going to take another step you know i think kurt cobain and at least in my assumptions you know is a guy that that just had immense talent and uh and that was really the thing that that was so sad was you know either on his own or with Nirvana, I felt like he was somebody that could, that could not, you know, not obviously flip his sound completely, but, you know, it's a guy, like we said, that was a big Daniel Johnston fan, big Vaseline's fan, a blues fan, you know, he, he had a lot of depth to his musical ability and his writing. And, uh, as much as I love the Stooges, that's something that I think, you know, you could, you could kind of counter the two bands with there too. Now they both had short careers. Um, but I think that, uh, the Nirvana was a band that could have popped in a different direction had they stayed in the game. It was, it's, whereas, it's, it's a whereas I think you make a great point that the Stooges may have used up every ounce of every, you know, thing that they had. Um, yeah, well, goodwill, but also, you know, uh, unbroken bones. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, Nine lives. The, the one, to, to add your point, though, um, you know, I, I think, yeah, think about the untapped potential of Dave Grohl. Um, I mean, there's a guy who's, you know, yeah, he's, he's singing harmonies on, on a couple of those, uh, well, on, on Nevermind and In Utero. Um, and, but, I mean, we, we've since learned that he's a... Uh, very capable songwriter and band leader in his own right. I mean, the guy, like, uh, just think about everything he's been involved with since. He starts to take a bigger role. These, those guys work together. I mean, you know, it, it's just, yeah, I think you're right that there's sort of this endless or this limitless ceiling. Yeah, yeah three which is bands so in this tournament. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think, too, like, the, I think the thing that, you know, it's a shame, and I, and I remember it, um, and, you know, there was just such a stigma around uh, ambition, back then um and you know i think pavement is one of the um you know the uh, you can you know they they reflected it in their performance but nirvana really reflected it in their performance there was they you don't get that good and that tight and that you know professional without being ambitious and wanting to succeed without practicing to death yeah i mean like that's not you don't nobody throws that act together i mean the fact that the guy's hurling himself through you know stacks of of amps or whatever fine but like that wasn't that wasn't a garage band that we were looking at in any of the footage that is a very very tightly wound uh you know sort of military like um you know operation and dave Grohl is from the other side of the country and is their sixth drummer so it's not like they weren't trying (laughs) they weren't just throwing shit together that was a that was a professional operation you don't get you know you don't hire butch fig by accident 
Um, and so I think, you know, I mean, I, that no, and you don't strip your sound down and hire Steve Albini to expose your vocals because you know, you can sing, even though people don't think you can like, mm-hmm. I mean, those are all such deliberate. Yeah, no, great, that's a great point. Well, I think we're ready to vote. All right. Uh, um, Jesus. I, I'm not going first this time. <laughs> that's all I'll I'm go say. first. I, uh, right. and I am, uh, going to, you know, I kick myself for this because I do think. The Stooges are one of the greatest bands of all time, but I'm going Nirvana. You, you know, I I think part of the reason that I that I waxed poetic for so long on how great I think the Stooges are was because I saw this moment coming. I'm also going to go with Nirvana. I think uh, I've already been decided, but um, you know what? It would have been a sweep. I, I just I think they were a bigger... I, I think the Stooges were as big as any band, any American band, but I think Nirvana had a, a depth of talent that um, is just kind of unmatched. So we're going to go uh, Nirvana onto the finals against their, mm. their idols, the Pixies. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you I'm Ladies and gentlemen, that's awesome. So we have, uh, yeah, we have we have a major, major early '90s showdown in Nirvana and the Pixies in the final. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to that. I am too. And uh, bring your A game because one of these guys is going to need it. That's it for this episode of Brother 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 Podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening.